If you are new here, welcome. Uh, we have been going through uh, the letter that Paul wrote to a bunch of churches uh, in what is now modern-day Turkey. Uh, back then, they were uh, in the region of Galatia in the Roman Empire. So this is the letter of Paul to the Galatians. Uh, we are in the fourth chapter. Uh, so if you have a bulletin, by the way, we ran out of bulletins. We apologize. Uh, more of you showed up than we anticipated. And this being flu season, we didn't recycle bulletins for health reasons. So if you don't have a bulletin and you want to follow along, gracetoronto.ca forward slash service, and you will find the um, e-bulletin there for you to follow along with. But if you do have a bulletin, or if you have a Bible or Bible app, Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 8 to 20, is where we are at. And now to help us with the reading of God's Word, Kathy. From Galatians 4, verses 8 to 20. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, we're in the middle of this series, as you can tell. Uh, the book of Galatians is one of those books or letters uh, in the New Testament that most explicitly and with laser-like focus reveals Christianity to be a spiritual and religious system centered on grace and grace alone. Unlike any other religious system uh, then existing and actually any other religious system since and unlike any secular or non-religious moral code I know of, Christianity is architected squarely, almost solely on the idea of grace and faith. Undeserved mercy, undeserved love, unlimited delight of God, purchased at the expense of God himself through Jesus. And here, in the fourth chapter, Paul begins to apply this principle of the centrality of grace to a specific situation in the churches he's writing to. He draws two contrasts for us to consider. Firstly, he draws a contrast between the Galatian church as he's experiencing it in his now to the Galatian church that he first encountered when they first became Christians and learned the gospel. That's the first contrast. And he's doing that to show a profound difference in culture. The Galatian church he's meeting now is filled with division, pride, comparison, and competitiveness. The Galatian church he met earlier was filled with joy, humility, gratitude, and love. 
And his point here is that the culture that's created in that church is a direct result of the centrality of grace in the life of that church. The church at Galatia at the beginning believed they were saved by the undeserved mercy and grace of God alone. The church he's encountering at the moment that he's writing this is a church that is focusing on their works to complete God's approval and blessing of them. And in their works, they have put themselves under a performance treadmill that's creating a vastly different culture. A second contrast Paul is making is between leadership. What kind of ministering style is, a, is, is happening in both situations? Paul contrasts the leadership of the Jewish Christian leaders, the Judaizers who are opposing him, who have added works and performing into their view of how true spirituality should exist. He's contrasting their leadership with his. And so Paul invites us by doing these two contrasts to ask ourselves, where are we? Where am I personally and where are we as a church in terms of our culture and in terms of our understanding of ministry and leadership, culture and ministry, culture and leadership. Those are the two points. Firstly, gospel culture. Look at your first paragraph and then a little bit into the second. Paul is describing what they were like. Before they became Christians, he says, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. And he's talking there about their pre-Christian phase when they believed in other religions, other deities that were not actually the true God. They were enslaved to them because they are not the true God, but they were being asked to perform all kinds of things for these deities. Paul's point is there's only one God. There's only one God who exists. The Jewish people called him Yahweh. Christians called him God the Father. This true God has a beloved son, Jesus Christ, who's part of the Godhead and the Spirit. And this true God who is, is the one true God. Any other way of thinking about God, any other way, secular or non-secular, you are actually falling into a false religious pattern. And Paul doesn't care about the particulars of what they are believing, these other people. But what he's saying is there's an enslaving dynamic, whatever it is. In other words, Paul is saying, if you're not believing in the gospel of grace, you're believing in some other form of spirituality, some other moral code. And it goes this way. Do A, B, and C. And the deity that you do them to will give you X, Y, and Z as a reward. And so you put yourself on a treadmill of performance to that deity. And Paul is saying, this is where you are. Now, you used to be there, and you're there now. But there was a time, he's saying, in between, when you first became Christians, when you weren't like this at all, when you were free, when you were joyful. Now, we look at this, and we go, this doesn't apply to us at all. We don't follow We never followed any ancient gods of ancient religions. We've never been enslaved like this. But I want to stop and ask if that's actually true. Kids, those of you who are kids here, maybe facing teenage life, is it not true that you're feeling incredible peer pressure to fit in? Sure it is. 
University students, are you not feeling the pressure to conform? Sure you do. Professionals, is it not true that in our culture, we have incredible cultural pressure to conform, to be considered culturally sophisticated? We'd have certain views on the environment, certain views on gender fluidity, certain views on Doug Ford, (laughs) certain views on everything, or we risk being ostracized. It's an unbending, unforgiving, shame-infused call-out culture we have right now. Don Cherry knows it well. I'm not defending what he said. What I am saying is he's been saying things just this way for decades. But we've finally grown intolerant of it. Our codes have changed. Our tolerance level has changed. But it's not just that code. It's the code of our work. The unbending code of continuing to perform so we succeed. The enslaving treadmill of our bucket lists and our relationships. You have to be sophisticated enough, woke enough, diverse enough. You have to be, and these are good things, by the way. These moral codes are good things. But they put us under a treadmill. Where in our culture can we go and say, I screwed up and receive unconditional grace and forgiveness? We feel a lot of these pressures, as modern and as secular as we are. And Paul says, you were slaves. Then you got grace. And now you're adding works and your own performance to add to the grace to please God. You're thinking you need to do something to please God. You know what that's like? It's as if you never knew him at all. Paul says, now that you've come to know God, or rather be known by God. See, he switches from the active, you knew God, you did it, to you were known by him. It's an act of grace. (laughs) How is it? How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You're Christians. You call yourselves Christians, but you put yourself on such a performance treadmill of do A, B, and C, so the true God, I got the true God, right, will give me X, Y, and Z. What does that look like? That looked like exactly the same religious background you had back then. It's the same kind of slavery. It's as if you don't know God at all. You somehow turn Christianity into a treadmill of enslaving performance. And what's the result? Well, the result, as we saw earlier, was division. Jewish Christians were no longer hanging out with Gentile Christians. There was a division in the church. They wouldn't eat with them. Why? Because of pride. The Jewish Christians thought they were better than, morally superior to, the Gentile, non-Jewish Christians. They were comparing themselves with each other. They, They were creating these lists. Look what he says. You do this. You observe days and months and seasons and years. So there's this punctilious performance of all these seasons and festivals that were part of the Jewish faith, which were good things. Because these seasons and festivals, what were they meant to do? celebrate God's grace to them. But what are they turning it into? I'm better than you because I'm observing them. Is it about God and his greatness and his grace? No, it's about me and my religious performance suddenly. And so Paul invites us to ask ourselves, which culture 
which way of thinking about spirituality is most like us? For many of us, we come from Christian traditions that require us to show up at almost every meeting or else our spirituality is questioned. Some of us, and I count myself as one of them, I was raised in the Catholic tradition. Some of us were raised in Catholic or Orthodox or Anglican traditions, which really often emphasize performing the sacraments as markers of your spiritual maturity. Others of us, many of us here also, were raised in a tradition of prayer and Bible studies. Twice a day. We feel guilty if we miss a Bible reading. If we don't pray enough, we feel guilty. So what happens? Prayer becomes transformed. Instead of it being what it was meant to be, the creator of the universe is your loving father and invites you to talk to him. What a privilege. What a grace. It turns into, I must do my praying every day and check the box off so I can feel good about myself. I'm a parent. I've come to learn about these family devotions I'm supposed to have with my child two, three times a day. You know, I'm lucky if I get two, three times a week. And I'm a pastor. I feel guilty about that all the time. I feel under the pile. You see, this is what it looks like to have a culture where the gospel of grace has been distorted by this addition of performance-based spirituality, which is what humans do all the time, either in secular or religious forms. We create performance-based meritocracies. And Paul says that's not what the church's culture is supposed to be. Look at how he describes what the culture was supposed to be by telling them what they used to be. Galatians 4, verse 12. Okay? Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. That's a confusing statement. What he's saying is, become like me, free of all these Jewish um, ceremonial laws. I was Jewish. I became as you are. I became as if I was non-Jewish. You're not Jewish. Don't don't go where I was. I became as you are. Don't, so now become as I am. Come free. You know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God as Christ Jesus. Whoa. What's he saying? He's saying, I came to you with a bodily ailment. Scholars now are beginning to solidify around the fact that God, the bodily element, the thorn in his side that he speaks about in Corinthians had something to do with his eyesight. Because he says at the end of this letter, see with which large letters I'm writing to you, it's someone who had a visual disability probably. Now in those days, to have a visual disability, to be blind in Jewish circles was to be cursed by God. It had massive religious and social consequences. It also had massive physical consequences. They didn't have much help for people who were handicapped or had disabilities back then. You had to lead them around, constantly care for them in ways that you wouldn't have to for others. So we know Paul from other letters to be physically unimposing. We know him to have a bit of a a personality that's not very charismatic. Corinthians tells us all of that. So small, uh, um, uh, 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 old, 
uh, not, in, not in the Bible, but old descriptions of Paul passed down to the early church. says he was, he was bow or bandy-legged. He had one eyebrow. He was a unibrow guy. I mean, he wasn't like, you know, he wasn't put together, you know? He wasn't charismatic. He wasn't well-spoken. And he had physical disability. And how did they treat him? They didn't have the pride to care. They were humble. God's grace had shown them how unworthy they were. And so as he became a messenger of God's grace, they treated him like an angel, it says. They didn't scorn or despair or despise him. They didn't play the comparison game. They didn't evaluate him on how charismatic or smooth. They just loved the message he gave and treated him as an angel of God. There's humility there. There's gratitude there. They were just grateful that someone would care enough to tell them the good news about Jesus and his forgiveness. Though it was a trial, they did everything to make him feel comfortable. They treated him as if he was an angel. There's self-sacrifice and love there. And finally, he says, verse 15, what has become of the blessing you felt? There was a sense of blessing. The Greek word there means a sense of happiness that arises out of undeserved gifts. He was, they were gratefully joyful. Joy, gratitude, humility, humble self-sacrificial love versus pride, division, comparison, and dutiful obeying of days and months and seasons. Here are two cultures, men and women. Which one do you want? One is based on grace. One is based on grace plus your performance, which functionally makes it about you. The other one's based on grace, which makes it all about God and his love. So I'm here to ask the questions, where are you at? If you're here and you're investigating Christianity, which of these describes you more accurately? A sense of anxiety, of having to be under the pile, of having to perform, a sense of comparing yourself having pride when you do well and looking down on those who don't, or a sense of undeserved joy because of undeserved grace poured out upon you, which one would you want to characterize your life? Jesus says, these things I speak to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The gospel invites you to a life of joy, gratitude, and humility. And by the way, if you're here and you're a Christian it's the same invitation for you. Ask yourself how you see your relationship with God and life. Do you feel joy and humility and gratitude regularly? Or do you feel like you're under the pile? In your, in your meditations upon your spiritual life, are you making much of God and His grace? Or are you focusing more on your own performance and judging and evaluating? When you sin... And I do this all the time. Do you say to yourself, I should do better. I should be better. You hear that? Comparison. Pride. I should be better. No humility. No joy. Duty. Anxiety. Guilt. Where are you? Where are we? Where are we? 
Is our culture dominated by joy, humility, gratitude, and love? Are our small groups places that are safe places for people to go and say, I've screwed up, and people say, you know what? You have. But there's room for you to screw up and repent and forgive because there's grace for you from Jesus Christ. Are we giving each other grace, accepting each other in humility? Are we pouring out our joy in the undeserved blessedness we have from God? If not, Paul says, there's not enough grace. There's too much performance in the functional way we're understanding and expressing our Christianity. Sunday morning, what are we like? Is there joy, humility, gratitude? Or are we moving around in little cliques, comparing ourselves to others? Do we just hang out with the put together, the smart, the beautiful? Where are we at? A gospel culture is filled with humility. The love of another just because they have God's grace. Joy, gratitude toward others. A truly inclusive community that isn't bothered by physical disabilities, social awkwardness. Hmm? Or do we live in a culture where there's division, pride, comparing, duty? A culture where we're functionally under the pile. A culture, as he puts it, where, where we're enslaved to these elementary principles of, of trying to merit and earn everything and ex- distinguish ourselves that way. Which culture do you want this church to be? I know which culture I would like it to be. And I have to say to you, I am so grateful that this is that kind of culture, generally. There's so much joy and gratitude and humility here. Secondly, though, Paul says, there's a way to look at gospel ministry and gospel leadership. Because he makes this contrast between himself and these other leaders. It starts in verse 16. He says, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They They have somehow created division between me who first gave you the gospel and you, the recipients of the gospel. It's not sure how it's happened, but that's what they've done. They've fostered division. Then he says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They flatter you. They make you feel important. But what's their purpose? They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. Here Paul is talking about, they want to shut you out from feeling God's full grace completely at Christ's expense. And they want to add a principle of merit and work and earning into it so you can make much of them. Because now you've got to go to them. What do I need to do? What are the hoops I need to jump over? What are the metrics I need to attain? And you're giving them leverage to evaluate and have power and influence over your own understanding of your own walk with God. They become the de facto gatekeepers of your spirituality. You see, works-based moral codes, both secular and religious, just invariably produce this kind of leadership where there are gatekeepers, where there are metrics of evaluation, where you give yourself to others and they have leverage over you. And they have the ability to make you feel guilty, to make you feel ashamed. In other words... Outside in spirituality, they leverage it 
and you comply. But here, what does Paul say? His purpose is. He says, but I... He says, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. See his picture of himself? I'm like a father. And I'm here to make you the most beautiful you you can be, to release you. I don't want leverage over you. I want Christ formed in you. I want you to have freedom from leverage in me. I want to see Christ formed in you. Do you hear that? It's not my ideas. It's not my standards. I want to see Christ. I want to see you loving Christ, feeling Christ, experiencing and enjoying Christ. And I want to see that love of Christ pouring out of you. I want, in other words, an inside-out spirituality where God's grace so thrills you, so fills you, so satisfies you, so captures you that it oozes out of you. And you, like Calvin and Pearl, feel compelled to give your life to let others know about that love. You don't have to go to Nepal to do that. But you do have to let God's grace fill your soul. That's what we should look for in our leaders. Leaders who want to form Christ in us. Bible study leaders who don't just want to look like experts. And if you're a Bible study leader, a grace gathering leader, we have great you know, leaders notes for you, but they're not meant for you to look like an authority. They're meant for you to form, help form Christ in the people around you. The people you minister to, are you doing ministry to others to make them like you, to make them respect you? That's why I've done it way too many times. Or are you doing it to form Christ in all of his glory in them so that they glory in Jesus? You see, that's the purpose of our small groups. That's the purpose of my coming up here and speaking is to form Christ in you. Parents, what are you doing with your kids? Are you trying to form Christ in them? Too often for me, I'm trying to enforce behavioral codes in them so I'll look like a good parent. Gospel culture. Gospel leadership. Paul wants to be a servant of them, not an authority over them. Have your leaders be humble servants under you, exhorting you to move toward Jesus. And if, if I'm not like that, call me to account. I was talking to Tim Keller a few uh, years ago, and I was at a conference, and I got a moment with him, and he said, I said, how do you foster this gospel culture? He says, by being a gospel leader. I said, thanks. <laughs> what does that mean? He says, well... You not just not only have to preach the gospel, you have to embody it. I'm like, Tim's always got these perfect words. Okay, what does that mean? He says, well, you need to repent clearly, consistently, and publicly, and specifically of your sins. And I looked at him, I said, okay, and walked away and said, there's no way. My reputation is my functional God. I love being respected. To do this is just poking at my deepest desires and functional gods. But by the grace of God, you have provided a safe place for me to learn, to admit my sins publicly, specifically, consistently, 
so that I can learn how to be a leader who experiences the grace from you and models the grace and humility for you. And I thank you for that gift. And I say, let's excel still more. Do you know where we get the power to do that? You and me, to minister that way and to create a culture that way? We get it from Jesus himself, the ultimate minister of the gospel, who being in the very nature of God, having every right to compare himself and look down upon us and judge us and separate himself from us, did the opposite. In humility, he became one of us. In humility, he took upon himself not only our nature, but he took upon himself the guilt of our sin. And he went to the cross, and there he took God's judgment. He didn't write us off. He allowed God to write him off because he loved us and found us worthy of his unconditional love, and he became a curse. And he took... He took the actual moral code of God, the actual unbending code of God that does exist. And he obeyed it. And then he went to the cross and he took our lack of obedience and he paid its guilt for us. In love, he died for us. And he sends his spirit to Christians so that we can experience that love. So that at the center of your soul and your life and your understanding of your walk with God, there is a joy, a love, a humility, and a gratitude that fills you and thrills you so that the gospel begins to ooze out of you and you obey God from the inside out, not because someone is leveraging you and enslaving you from the outside in. The only obedience that I want from my daughter, well, no, that's not true. Sometimes I want, for my own reputation's sake, for her to just obey, and I don't care how begrudging it is. But the obedience that thrills my heart as a father is the heartfelt, spontaneous, heart-filled of love, expressions of obedience that my daughter gives. This is the spirituality of freedom. Inside out, gospel in, gospel filling, gospel oozing, gospel culture that God wants, gospel leadership that God wants us to have. It's an amazing journey we've had. Let's keep it there. Make it so in your life. Make it so in our church. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness to us and your love toward us. And I pray now that you, by your grace, would do this to us, that you would allow us to move, to move from thinking much of ourselves and being quietly disappointed to making much of your grace and being exuberantly grateful. Because when we're there, the joy will come out and the obedience will be beautiful. I pray that this would be our truth as a church, that we would have a culture of inside-out joyful obedience, and we would have a culture of gospel leadership and ministry where for the sake of seeing Christ formed, we act like fathers and mothers to each other. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, a couple of questions. 
should we not feel obliged to follow and pursue the Ten Commandments and change our lives? Yes. You should. Shouldn't we try every day to live within God's law? Yes, you should. You're like, isn't that a contradiction? I don't see how. You know why it's a contradiction? Because the inevitable human way of turning that into a performance treadmill is why we feel there's a tension. When I'm totally in love with my wife, shouldn't I act like I'm in love with my wife? Yes. Should I do it to get her love? No. Should I do it to respond to the love she pours out on me? Yes. Should I love her? Absolutely. Should you love God by obeying His commands? Yes. But He's your beloved spouse who sent His Son to die for you, who wants to be spiritually your husband, who wants to be your deepest love and has poured out His deepest love through His Son to you. So yes, as a response to His love, you should, of course, obey His commands because that's His love language. My wife came to me, as I said, several years ago, and I said, you know, your love language is weird. It's acts of service. Mine is normal. It's gifts. So what can I give you? And she said, you can give me the gift of an act of service. Quick is my wife. She said, you can make me coffee every morning. Well, I've made her coffee almost every morning for, I don't know, 13 years since she said it. Guess what? It's a response to her love language. God's love language is obeying my commands. It's a response to his love. Obey it. I can't say this enough, but we always say, well, isn't that intention with what you said? How can that be intention? It's only intention because we turn those Ten Commandments immediately into a performance treadmill because that's the way our mind thinks. That's why every other religion and every other secular moral code all have do, 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 do. It's embedded within us. What you have to do, what we have been arguing all fall for you to do is to beat out of your head and mind and heart in a disciplined way, a spirituality of merit. Christianity is not a meritocracy. It's a safe place of grace for those who don't deserve it. Because when you feel like you don't deserve it, guess how loving, grateful, and beautiful your obedience to God is. Way better. God would much prefer grateful, joy-filled following of His Ten Commandments than dutiful, this is what I need to keep you off my back and pay the rent to you. Don't you see? Haven't you ever had a relationship where if you think someone's doing it because they have to, do you, do you like that more than when they do it because they want to? No. But when they want to out of the bottom of their heart just because they love you, that's the kind of activity and behavior to you that you most value. Great question. It gets to the heart of what we're talking about. If the Lord is good to all, does that also include demons and the accuser? Oh, sorry. That's last week's. (laughs) All right. Uh, There are no more questions. (laughs) There is one over here. There we go. Thank you. There is. There is. That is a great point.
The yes. Okay. Okay, you're exciting me. Sorry, because you've asked the two questions I've been waiting all fall for people to ask, or you, you know, in, in, in a way of pushback. So thank you, and I want to affirm both exactly what you said. Matter of fact, I wish I had a microphone for you. Uh, what you said is, and it's true. There's something good about the call-out culture because we need to hold people accountable for these things. Me Too movement to me is one of the best things that has happened in the last 20 years because men are finally being held accountable for the ways that they treat women. Absolutely true. It's not the accountability for wrong that I'm worried about. It's the shame-based call-out and immediately crucify people before the evidence is in that's the real problem right now in that culture. Every moral code that you will name has beautiful things and beautiful intentions at its heart. The problem is it doesn't actually give people a safe place to admit it because it's, the consequences are so severe and so unbending. So it actually hurts itself sometimes. You know, we get people pushing back unnecessarily against what I think is an obvious thing in the Me Too movement, which is men need to be held accountable for clearly sexist and oppressive behavior towards women, for example. But if we, if, if we don't understand the unbending nature of it, we miss the downside of it as well. And so for the past nine or ten months, all I have done is really talk about the value of some of these things. And in the last three weeks, I've shown some of the probably unintentional, but almost always happening dark side of these movements. They always get spoiled by this pharisaical kind of unbendingness, and there's not a safe place. Whereas Christianity has an unbending moral code, but also because of the forgiveness in Christ has this great combination. So you are absolutely right. That's a great pushback. And if someone's only been here in the last four weeks, they need to hear that. Secondly, you said, and I want to get this right, Sometimes I don't feel like obeying out of gratitude, joy, and and I have to discipline myself to do it because my desire isn't there yet. And through the discipline, the desire comes. And I want to say that is brilliant and true. And I'm so glad you raised it because I am not advocating for an undisciplined Christian life. The only way you actually get grace flooding your heart. If, if you discipline yourself in the word and in prayer to commune with the God of all grace. But it's not a box to be checked and now I'm done. There's an objective to the prayer and the reading. And it's not to check the box that I've read scriptures in a year, which is what I did for years. It's to find the grace that my duty-oriented heart needs because my duty-oriented heart has just turned this into a discipline and doesn't feel God's unfailing love. And so I'm fighting with my heart to find the grace that God has displayed for me in Christ, God has revealed to us. And so it's a fight for grace. So kudos to you for laying in one question both of the biggest issues here. Your Bible reading is not to check off the box. Your prayer is not to check off the box of what you did. It's to fight, to feel God's grace come back to you. Does that make sense? Great question. Thank you. And so now we're going to give one of the elements that God gave us to help us fight for grace. God asked us to remember and regularly practice a sacrament called communion or the Lord's table. Because on the last day that Jesus was with his disciples, just before he was arrested, he broke bread 
said, this is my body which is given for you. In other words, this meal symbolizes my gracious death for you. And he said, do this in memory of me. Rehearse the grace so it pours into your life as a discipline. A little while later, he picked up a cup of wine and said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And he said, do this in memory of me. By which he meant, my blood will be poured out as an act of grace to cover your sin. Do this ritual, not to check it off, but to dive deeply into the grace that it symbolizes and portrays that Christ died for you because he loved you. And so in that spirit, I'm going to ask all of us to fight for grace by focusing ourselves on what he has done for us in this meal. If you're not yet a Christian, there are prayers in the bulletin for you to look at and to locate yourself in your spiritual journey. But if you are a baptized believer, this is your moment to dive deeply, even in a disciplined way, into God's unconditional grace for you. I'm going to pray. The elements will be served. The bread is gluten-free. The wine is darker than the grape juice. Let us pray, and then the table will be open. You may take the elements as they come to you. Father, I thank you and praise you. Now would you come by your Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, and allow your grace to pour into us spiritually, by your Spirit, as we physically take these elements, this bread and this cup. We pray now that your grace would be revealed to us and embedded in us in Christ's name. Amen. Table's open.